mercy, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And I am your host, John Allen. Now today I have a uh, exciting guest. I think this is a uh, exciting guest. And we're going to talk about some exciting things. Uh, his name is Dr. Howell Wexler. He is the previous. He's previously been the CEO of Alliance for a Healthier Generation. Uh, previously, he was director of the Division for Adolescent and School Health at the CDC, that's Centers Center for uh, Disease Control in the United States. And he is currently the director of U.S. programs at FHI 360. Dr. Howell Wexler, how are you, Howell? I'm doing great. Good morning. Coming to you live from New York. Now, are you in uh, the Bronx? Are you in Brooklyn? Where, where are you in New York? Uh, never Brooklyn. Uh, we, I, we grew up in the Bronx, uh, but now I live in Midtown Manhattan. I live right next to the United Nations building, actually. Okay. Just a short little walk to some important things there. Uh, yeah, and it's crazy in the fall when they have the General Assembly and all the presidents and kings come. The, the security here is absolutely insane. You have to show all sorts of ID just to get into your own building, just to get to, to the block. And uh, we don't know. Uh, sometimes we think we're, we're the safest place on Earth at that time, and other times we think we're the, the most dangerous place on Earth. Well, that safety, those safety procedures, you know, security and whatnot is a good thing to have in place, but I would imagine it's something of a disturbance for local life there i mean things kind of get yeah, turned upside city, down you get you get used to getting all, all your groceries and things delivered to you because it's really hard you know the supermarkets are small and narrow and so you get used to that and during those two weeks uh, -uh there are no deliveries coming on the block they can't get past the security cordons wow interesting i don't uh, life in new york city is just you know even as an american citizen i've driven through new york <laughs> But life in New York City seems so foreign to me. I'm raised in rural <laughs> Ohio. Uh, I don't know. You guys are living a different life. You, you know, it's not for everyone, but I got to come back here. I lived and raised my family in the Atlanta area when I was working at the CDC for about 20 years. Uh, and then when I had an empty nest, my youngest graduated from high school, went to college. Coinc not coincidentally, perhaps you went to New York University. Uh, this was my, my chance to fulfill my dream of coming back home. Uh, coming home, as you yeah, say. There you uh, go. I had that opportunity, and I have just loved every second of it. I know it's crazy that just the energy, the the pace. I'm a fast walker, and I race past everyone on the street, and I just can't get get enough of it. I I love the city life. I love the walking. Uh, you know, we had two cars, and we we sold the cars, and. I have no idea what gas costs or anything like that, and I'm always vertical, moving quickly uh, on the streets, and uh, so it's it's been real challenging these last few months, and I just pray that uh, my beloved city can come back again. Yeah, your city has been turned upside down on its head. I have a couple of uh, friends in the music business uh, there in New York. They're over in Harlem. Yeah. And, you know, up through the years, they'll do, you know, selfies or they'll film little snippets of life there uh, from their from their apartment window. And you see the hustle and bustle. And now it's just the exact opposite. It's totally dead, totally quiet. Um, well, except it's calmed down now. But in, in much of April and uh, the first few days of, of May, it would be ridiculously silent, so eerily silent. 
And then every two or three minutes, you'd hear that, that shrieking wail of an ambulance passing by. And you'd hold your breath and pray for whoever was, was just being rushed to, to medical care. And then two or three minutes later, another ambulance. Two minutes later, another ambulance. Never heard anything like it. It, it was horrifying to hear that over and over. I can imagine that's literally the sound of desolation, the sound of pain, the sound of sickness. I don't, yes. I'm not trying to dramatize it, but it is a dramatizing, it is a dramatized situation within itself. No, and you, you try to watch a comedy on TV or, or you're talking with a friend or you're having an interesting work call uh, virtually and then boom, it just comes and it, it just yeah. was relentless. It would not stop. You, there was no way you could be distracted or not be cognizant of the fact that just so many thousands and thousands of your fellow, your neighbors were being yeah. rushed to hospital and so many dying. As an American citizen, I try to keep myself grounded in my Americanness, if we can use that word. So I'm, I'm doing my best <clears throat> to keep my view uh, uh, open to, you know, get as much information as I can about the situation back home uh, in these times of isolation and quarantine and whatnot, because it is a drastic difference uh, from what we have here in Norway. Um, over here, people are fairly relaxed. Over here, people are listening to the guidelines that the government is putting out. Over here, there's not that large number of deaths per 100,000 citizens. What do you, now you are a learned man, this is your field of work. What do you think are some of the things that lead to such a wide disparity, a wide difference in how COVID-19 is being experienced in different countries? Uh, well, as with most uh, health outcomes, it's really determined uh, socially, uh, socioeconomically. Uh, we have just a, a cesspool of inequality in our country. Uh, and this pandemic, this epidemic in the United States has just fiercely illuminated how incredibly unequal our society is. Uh, and then the fact that the people who can afford it the least uh, are the ones who are required, who cannot work from home, who are disproportionately represented in the frontline workers uh, and are much more likely uh, to, to get infected and then to come home and be in more crowded situations at home and affect others uh, in, in their household. It's, it's, it's been a nightmare. Uh, and if America can't learn from this uh, about how the inequalities that we have tolerated for decades that would, that are not existed in Norway or, or a fraction uh, of the degree of the inequality we have, you experience in Norway, if we can't learn from this and grow and realize that we're only as healthy or as strong as, as the weakest uh, among us, uh, if we can't understand through the graphic demonstration of, of a highly infectious virus that we're all in this together. Uh, I just saw online someone told the story of uh, uh, about uh, it's a proverb, I think, where people were on a boat and one of the passengers decided he wanted to, to dig a hole uh, in, in his room uh, and all the other passengers came in and got angry and the point is we're, we're all in this boat together. 
and we have tolerated inequality at, at such massive degrees that have only gotten worse in, in the last four decades in particular. The inequality has soared in the United States and it's those, that degree of poverty and uh, lack of access to, to health care in many cases still in our country, lack of access to, to things we take for granted like running water. Uh, it's Flint, it's Michigan. Flint, Michigan, the Navajo Nation The Navajo Nation, yes, yeah. It's stunning, and we have to learn from this. And surely there's, you know, there's a good 30, 40% of our country that refuses to learn. The rest of us just have to stiffen our backbone uh, and, and say no more. We, we cannot tolerate this anymore. We, we need to change this country. But do we need to find a new way of saying no more? Because we have been saying no more for quite some time. But there seems to be this wave of every man for himself. There seems to be this, what I think is a very un-American attitude of, I'm just going to look out for myself. That's nothing new. That's existed uh, from from the beginning of, of our country. It just hasn't been winked at, encouraged, uh, patted on the back from the highest levels of leadership in our country. Well, you bring up a very good point, and that is uh, something that I have addressed quite loudly, uh, both from this platform on my podcast, but then in person-to-person interaction, that when we see that it is from the highest levels that this this thing about, you know, I, I'm only going to do what's best for me or best for those who I want to impress, and that's that. And I don't know, how do, how do we fight against that? You know, as I say, we've been fighting against that. You say yourself, we've been fighting against that from the beginning, but doesn't something have to change? Because it doesn't seem to be taking any effect to the positive. Well, we've had some uh, electoral successes in, in the last couple of years. We, we need to bring out to the polls uh, the people who sat home in 2016. There's just nothing more important than, than that. Uh, and, and we have to, you know, we can't always play by uh, the, the, the kindest gentlemanly rules uh, when the other side is, is playing savagely. They are savage. I look at things like voter suppression, and to me it is blatantly uh, unethical uh, what some people on the right are doing as far as voter suppression. They want to take away polling places. They have taken away polling yes. places. Um, they are strongly uh, against uh, mail-in voting, and they're openly saying that they're against mail-in voting because they know they'll lose if more people can vote. There's something that is disgustingly unethical about that. Um, that too many people are still silent. You may see it that you know we've been stiff and firm and, and, and resilient and fighting back. I don't see it that way. I think we've been too silent. We've been too timid. Uh, when when we spoke up, uh, you know, some good things happened, as in the 2018 uh, elections. Yeah. Uh, we, need, we need to be strong. We need to be loud. We need to be fierce. Uh, we need to stiffen our backbone and, and you know, no more, no more. I think people need to dare to be a little more vocal than what they are. You know, you see Absolutely. the... Yeah. Well, you, going back to this disparity, to this difference in... Um, Social economic status, which has led to a certain demographic suffering more than the rest. Uh, can, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Now we're talking mostly about people of color. 
Mostly, yeah, low-income people low income. Uh, in general, and then, then people of color, uh, blacks, uh, Latinx, uh, Native Americans, yeah. Uh, the, the data coming in have clearly indicated that they're disproportionately represented among the infected uh, and uh, the dying, uh, and those who uh, are most catastrophically stricken by the financial consequences. Now, this is something that you've worked with long before uh, this issue with COVID-19. If we can go back to your time at the CDC, uh, let me let me ask you, how did you how did you land a job like that? That's that's uh, <laughs> respect, yeah, well, as they say in the streets, respect. <laughs> I had no idea even that there was a field called public health when, when I was a kid in, in college. My whole focus for the first 20 plus years of my life was on becoming a newspaper reporter. I was inspired by Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate. and I was going to be the next crusading journalist and eventually uh, editor of the New York Times. And I was on every school newspaper. I was an editor on the campus daily. I went to Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, which is pretty much the, the top yes. undergraduate journalism program uh, in, in the United States. Uh, I had terrific internships. I did an internship as a reporter with the Detroit Free Press, which wow. was an exciting experience. Yeah. I was sure that that, that was the, the path for me. But then my senior year of college, I, I kind of took the year off from journalism, got into a lot of political activism, a couple of issues. Uh, back then we were concerned about the Russians in Afghanistan. I was talking about bringing back uh, the draft in the U.S., and so we were agitating against that. There was also a catastrophic uh, genocide occurring in Cambodia, uh, and I organized a group to, to raise money to, to support uh, the folks who were starving over there. And uh, so I started thinking about other things. And then uh, uh, in the middle of my senior year of college, strange thing happened. I, uh, I opened up my books to start my homework at 2 a.m. Because, you know, that's what you do when you're at senior. <laughs> you start your homework at 2 a.m. And I had the radio on listening to music. And they, uh, a commercial came on. And at that time, that's when their radio stations air all their public service announcements yeah. that they don't get paid for. And there was an announcement for the Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. And I don't know if you've had this experience in your life, but it just came over me in a flash. I was sure I was just headed straight to this career, as an, and I was going to—I was already starting to apply for newspaper reporting uh, positions. Uh -huh. And in a flash, my whole life turned. I said, "That's where I'm going. That's what I'm doing." What well, was it about the Peace Corps that seemed attractive to you? There must have been some element of that that made you just totally well, take I, a right I mean, turn in your life. Yeah, I mentioned uh, my, my activism, uh, yeah. so I, I was always very concerned with what was going on overseas. Uh, uh, I had taken quite a few courses in, in African history, and there were opportunities to go in the Peace Corps and, and go to Africa, and that felt very exciting to me. I come from a family uh, where most everyone is in a helping profession. Uh, so Peace Corps felt like a natural fit. But most of all, to answer that question, I don't know. It was almost <laughs> mystical. It yeah. just came over me. It, my whole ambitions and plans were just upended from hearing that one PSA. And from that moment on, I knew I'm going to Peace Corps. And I applied 
I was accepted, and a couple of months later, I was a play on a plane heading to what was then called the Democratic Republic of Zaire. Yes. Uh, and now it's called the Democratic Republic of, of the, Congo, the Congo, right in the center, in in the heart of Africa. So they sent me there as a as a high school English as a foreign language teacher, which actually was very valued by the people there. English sure. seen as a very prestigious language. Yeah. People really wanted to learn it, and it gave me a chance to really get to know the community uh, and somehow in that process in the middle of my second year there I found my life's calling in public health uh, because my house was on the road to the cemetery and the tradition there is when someone it, it was the biggest road in town it was about six feet of dirt and, and <laughs> uh, but the tradition there was when someone dies the family rents uh, an open-air truck they put the coffin in the back of the truck and then dozens and dozens of mourners stand in the back of the open air truck and the truck goes to the cemetery and all the mourners are singing hymns uh, as they go by. Okay. And I learned very quickly when that truck passes by, you don't move, you don't, you just take your hat off, you respect show respect. And, yeah. and being on that main road, this would be a, a normal daily occurrence. Well, in the middle of my second year, it was a really bad dry season and, and I lived in kind of in the middle of the equatorial rainforest, uh, but there's two or three months where it doesn't rain and, and this dry season was really bad and that makes it easier for, get this, viruses to spread. Uh, and I started noticing something very strange. There were many, many more of those funeral trucks passing by and I would see the coffins and they were tiny. They, uh, were, they yes. were babies, they were toddlers. I and I had no idea what was going on. So I went to someone I knew who uh, actually was a, a Belgian so-called volunteer because we were, as, as American Peace Corps, we were real volunteers. Yeah. We, we got very minimal salary. We lived, you know, in, in very simple uh, housing uh, and, and we really got to, to know the people that way. This this dude was, was a Belgian volunteer. He lived in a big mansion with a lot of oh. servants. All this exotic uh, luxury <laughs> food flown in from Europe and all the alcohol you could possibly imagine. It was just like a whole nother... Whole nother level. Yeah, yeah, he, he was a volunteer because he was using that to avoid military service. So he was a, a nurse and I he see. worked in the Catholic uh, healthcare clinic uh, that the, one of the Catholic churches had, had set up. So I go to him and I said, listen, I don't know anything about health, public health or anything like that. Why are all these kids dying? And he said, measles. Wow. What? I remember when I was a kid, it was kind of like fun if you got measles because you got to stay home and have a lot of uh, ice cream and uh, and we weren't afraid of dying so much. And, and wait a minute, kids aren't getting measles in the United States. Isn't there a vaccine for that? And he beckoned me with his hand. He took me to the cold room in his building. Yeah. It was a room with nothing but freezers uh -huh. and it was packed with thousands and thousands of doses of vaccines. And I said, so what's up? Why aren't, why aren't, isn't this protecting kids? He said they're not coming with their kids to get the vaccine. Now, why was said, that? He said the first of two sentences that changed my life forever. He said, the people here are too stupid to come get their kids vaccinated. The priest announces it all the time. The people are too stupid. He said that, you know, particularly a lot of these kids were malnourished. They suffered from malaria. Yeah. They would get an injection in their arm. 
and they would have a stronger reaction than well-nourished American kids would have. Sure, yeah. uh, it would get inflamed, and maybe the kid wouldn't feel so well for a couple of hours. So he said the word went out among the mothers, this is bad medicine. Stay away from it. Well, I, I said to him, wait a minute. I have so many friends here. I've seen, I've had friends who've lost kids. They are as devastated as anyone in America would be. I just, they're, they're wonderful people. They're the most resilient people I've ever met in my life because they had the worst government in the history of mankind and they had the, the, the most difficult living conditions and they survived and they thrived and, and, and they found ways to enjoy life. They were incredibly resilient. I, I, I just don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just kind of dwelling on that phrase. They're too stupid. To, uh, what kind of a person in a volunteer situation has that a mindset? A person who lives in a mansion with lots of all is... imported food and you know never eats the local food wow. anyway wow. Uh, so i said you know what i i know a lot of people here there i got a lot of friends I, I i bet i can get some people to come get their kids immunized and he said really how many do you think you can cut yeah how many kids do you think you can bring in i said i don't know maybe a hundred and he said all right and then he said the sentence that really sealed my fate and changed my life forever. He said, if you bring in a hundred kids, I will give you a case of beer. <laughs> now this dude had fancy imported liquor. I, with my salary, I could afford maybe one beer a week. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I, when I was in college, funny thing, when I was in college, I never drank beer. You know why? Because in America at that time, what we had for beer was Budweiser, Miller, and Coors. That was it. <laughs> that was it back in the day. And that that's not beer. That's, <laughs> that's just water. I, mean, that's, that's just water. I get there, and you know, there, there were a Belgian colony, and they were uh, influenced by the Belgian beer brewers. Their beer was amazing. And then add to the fact that it was almost forbidden fruit, because I could afford one bottle. All right, yeah. So this dude says to me, if you bring in 100 kids... I will give you a case of beer. That was it. That was it. You was so on this. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and I got an entire career in public health uh, out of that experience. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So I was in this town, in this county. There were probably 80,000 people living in this county. Uh -huh. And uh, maybe, maybe 500 of them had electricity and running water. Wow. They had uh, no newspaper. No radio. What, what, no year, what year was this, roughly? This was the early 1980s. Okay. Wow. And so all I had was word of mouth. So I went out with uh, a friend of mine, and we spoke at every organized group there was. The, the Catholic Church was very predominant, and they had all sorts of organizational meetings and structures. Uh, there were social clubs. Uh, people who came from different villages would band together when they came into this town, and they had their clubs. And we would go do a shtick for them. And our shtick, we did sort of a, stick, a, a, a skit in which I would pretend to be measles, uh, no, no, actually, my friend pretended to be measles, and I pretended to be a kid who isn't vaccinated, and that with that, I had my hands behind my back, and he would just punch me in the face, and I would go sprawling. <laughs> they roared to, to see this crazy American falling to the floor, uh -huh. and then... Uh, actually, I think I had it with one hand uh, and uh, behind the back and one hand open. Then, when you give your kid the vaccine, 
boom, you have two hands available. And next time he came to punch me, I threw him to the ground and they started roaring. <laughs> and we just spread the word. You know what they did have? They didn't have radio, newspaper or television. They, had t they literally had town criers. Oh. Uh, because when the government needed the people to do something, they had a network of... I see capos, uh, lieutenants, people on the block who would enforce whatever the government told the people they had right, to do. Right, and they yeah. would come in the morning. So we engaged them and got them to talk about this great once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Come get, save your kid from the measles, uh, the, which, again, is perceived as a deadly killer there, yes. unlike yeah. how it's perceived here. So as I was going, we had two sessions planned uh, in chief's compounds uh, on different parts of the town. One was in a chief's compound, one was in a community uh, center building uh, on the other side of town. And as I was going, uh, a good friend of mine, I was going to the session, a good friend of mine said, Hal, and this was a, a, a local person, a mm -hmm. Congolese person. This person said, Hal, don't get your hopes up. You know our people are stupid. They don't they don't understand. Uh, he used that same word. Yeah. Because, because that's what the colonialists had implanted uh, in, in, in the people. Uh, but boy, we proved them wrong. Uh, How many did I you get, uh, Tim? I, I looked at the record. This is a t county of about 80,000 people. The prior year, over the course of the entire year, they had immunized against measles 419 children. For the whole year? Our, yeah. In our two-day sessions... We immunized over 2,300 children. Amazing. And in, fa and in fact, the the mothers kind of started a riot. They were so, because the lines were so long and uh. it was so hot. They actually threw rocks and and broke the government uh, the windows of uh, <laughs> the community center building because they were so frustrated at waiting in line so uh. long because they wanted the service so badly. Tell me about it. How that is a drastic. Yeah, that is a drastic turnaround, and that that's life changing. That the the uh, the ripple effect you're talking about. This is in the early '80s. The ripple effect of the work you did is being felt today i'm sure that's something that changed probably changed the attitude of that entire population i hope so i hope so a lot of terrible terrible things have happened in that country since then yeah what was um, it like at that time when you were there i'm trying to think about my history now um well they were ruled by a dictator named mobutu sese seiko and it, it was right. his administration uh, that political scientists invented the word kleptocracy, government of the thieves, by the thieves, yeah. and for the thieves. He was also a brutal uh, murderer. He also uh, uh, tried to make himself into a god. He, 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 at different times, he declared himself at war with the Catholic Church. And one things that he, one thing that he did, uh, he would have them take all the hymns that had the word Jesus in it, and he would replace Jesus with his name. Yeah. So he set yeah. himself up as, as a godlike figure, and he Did, was. Didn't he try to actually? Him. Didn't he actually try to found his own religion and make that the state religion? If I remember Not correctly. Really, but he he implemented something called Zairianization, uh, which okay. basically said we are going. We are going to shed all of our colonial European ties. So he forbade a lot of European clothing. Uh, men were not allowed to wear ties. Women were not allowed to wear skirts. Uh, Christian names had to be abandoned legally. Nobody abandoned them. In reality, they all kept them. Yeah. But legally, in school and at work, they had to have only African right. names. Uh, 
and it was a farce and people saw through it uh he he also you know he was dealing with europeans on the side i was just gonna say he had villas in switzerland and yeah he uh he he partook in in every european delicacy he he could find i was just gonna Uh, say isn't it such that just about every one of the african uh dictators at some point during their rule they are propped up by one or several european countries or or maybe even the united states or the soviet union at that time power uh by by the cia he was a stooge of the cia and he was very close particularly to president reagan and and uh so he was seen as as a dependable ally because he would go to the highest bidder uh the the thing about living in the country that time everyone said it's never been as bad as this before and it can't possibly get worse and for the next 20 years it got worse every year uh it, it was heartbreaking because it's such a beautiful country the people are brilliant and amazing and resourceful uh and filled with love and ambition and hard work and they are so ill-served by the government and the social structures around them uh i had a most amazing experience i then came back uh for a third year, strictly as a public health volunteer, we continued the immunization work and I established a cadre of community health workers who basically just like the Catholic Church had had their lieutenants on each block who made sure all the kids got baptized and confirmed. I created, uh, working with the local hospital, we created uh, uh, this cadre of health workers, volunteer health workers, who uh, made sure all the kids got vaccinated, who made sure the parents knew what to do if their kids were suffering from terrible diarrhea, because actually diarrhea is the number one killer uh, over there. Yeah, isn't it as a result of dysentery or... Um... Yeah, all sorts of uh, parasitical right. infections. Yeah. Uh, and I created, uh, we're working with uh, colleagues at the hospital, we created uh, the first uh, public health textbook in the Lingala language and used it as our uh, curriculum for, for training wow. these community health workers. And I loved it. Uh, you know, I was I was not well trained in public <laughs> health. I, I wasn't trained at all. And I was kind of... But you had an thing. interest for, so I'm sure you were self-taught. You found out what you needed to know and then you learned it. Yeah, Correct? I found a one of the most amazing resources ever is a book called where there is no doctor it was written in the 70s by some amazing people in south america uh, and that that it basically was was my guide to the lessons and a lot of what i included in in our textbook uh, what were adapted from from that book that's uh, just amazing book that's really fascinating and i think it speaks to your engagement in the the issue of healthcare at that point you had zero education uh, i'm sure you were nervous there's probably some shaky moments where you didn't really know which way to go but you stuck with it you found the information you needed and you put you put it into practical use that's fascinating that's fascinating to me yeah there was one moment when i just channeled my anger and i did things that that shocked me uh because you know as a peace corps volunteer you're trained not to interfere to have to show only total respect for the local power structure you know you're a guest and you shouldn't be well the first day we were doing the immunizations uh, at the chief's compound the uh, hospital which had taken over the immunization program the government hospital uh, their nurses came and they were expecting like 12 people to show up and there were 800 people online and i said okay so i don't know anything about 
health care or public health, but I know you have to have clean needles and syringes. What, how are you going to do that? And they had like 25, 30 needles and syringes. <laughs> and I, they said... We, we, we don't have any resources. We can't, we can't get that done. I said, okay, well, then we can't immunize past the first 25 people. Or right, so. right. And the chief nurse said, are you kidding? These people will kill us. We, we have to keep on. They came here for this. We have to give them it. I said, no, you can't do that. I can't have this thing that we work so hard to promote actually hurt people, right. hurt the kids that we love and, and care for and, and want to, to protect. Uh, and so I said, I, what I realized what you could do is I asked him, how would you do this? He said, well, we would constantly boil water and boil them for a certain amount of time after we use them. And then they boil, boil the needles, the syringes. Yeah. Put them yeah. in boiling yeah. water for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Uh, and that would sterilize them. Right. And then they could use them again and, and go through the, the whole crowd. And I said, great, we've got to, we, we've got to get, because there they they created fire with from charcoal, okay, uh, and they would sell at the marketplace these huge sacks of charcoal, and I said, okay, so uh, go out and buy some charcoal, and he said, I don't have any money, we you know, we don't have any money, we we, we can't do that. So we're really so we're talking about this. zero resources. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I decided, well, the one guy who does have money is the chief medical officer because uh, he's well paid uh, and he probably steals a lot of money that should be going to, to the nurses and to the hospital. So I knew where he lived. I hopped on my bicycle while they're setting up the, the vaccination center. Hopped on my bicycle, drove to, wrote, wrote it to, to his big mansion, uh -huh. uh, and I pounded on the door and uh, the servant came to the door and said, no, the doctor's uh, in, in the villages. He's because what the doctor liked to do was hernia surgeries because he could charge a lot of money for that. People needed it. You had a captive audience. He didn't care about public health. He no. just wanted something that he could do to, to make money. Make money, yeah. So the doctor's not here, not going to be back for a few days. So I just, I panicked and I asked the, the servant, I said, where's the cooking shed? Where does he keep the charcoal? <laughs> and he pointed to the shed, and I raced over there. And you gotta, you gotta understand, I was the only white person that had ever been seen walking or on a bicycle. Every other white person was in a car, right. motorcycle, scooter. I was the only one they, they'd ever seen like that. So I, 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 I scooped my bicycle over. I rip open the door to his shed. I grab an entire sack of charcoal, put it on the back of my bicycle, race over, <laughs> throw it at the feet of, of the, the, the lead nurse and say, there's your charcoal. Let's sterilize those needles. <laughs> so you guys got it done then. You sterilize those needles and you just kept recirculating, just kept going. That's right. I think it was uh, I think it was safe, and I certainly didn't hear afterwards uh, any complaints about kids getting infected. <clears throat> well, they got the job done. That that uh, it just it, I'm I'm putting myself in that situation. What a testimony! What a testament to to focus and drive and commitment. Again, you're doing these things, and you had no medical education whatsoever at that point. With so much of what's needed to fix the health woes of people in this country and all and Norway and all around the world has nothing to do with medical training. It has to do with let's talk about it. What is it? 
It has to do with fighting the, the inequities, the, the social structure. It ha has to do with empowering people with uh, the, the skills so they can engage in, in that fight uh, as well. It has to do with organizational, community organizing. Uh, I, was, so I, I was reading over the last couple of days, I was reading <clears throat> uh, just to dig into your background a little bit, and I was looking at some of the work that you were doing, and you had... Uh, to be honest, I can't remember if it was a paper you had written or an article of some sort, or if it was a if it was a series of quotes from some sort of seminar that you gave. But you tied together um, that thread from uh, personal health, the health of children, and their receptivity to education. Yeah, that was one of my main themes at, at CDC. At CDC, I worked at the intersection of public health and education. So Weren't you the boss for that division? You were the boss? Yeah, for I was the director of the yeah. Division of Adolescent School Health for nine years. Uh, most folks at CDC, what they do is they provide support to state and local health departments. And my division did that, but our primary constituents were state and local education agencies. So I always like to say that, that I and my staff were bilingual. We spoke public health and we spoke education. One of the main things, and I, I, this was all the insights and genius of my predecessor in that role, one of the main things he did was he set up, because CDC sends funding out to states and cities, usually through health departments. Yeah. And our division had resources to do that as well. But the genius of my, that my predecessor had, he had the notion, let's give the money for once to education agencies. This way, they're going to have to hire people who, whose job is about health. This way, we're kind of infiltrating because they may not realize it. Smart. One of the greatest barriers to educational achievement relate to health and, and health challenges that young people face. But they don't see that. They're just focused on, you know, how much more drilling on the tests can we do to get those test scores up? They don't realize they have to go deeper and solve the, the more profound problems that are creating those barriers to learning. So the second thing he did was he said, I'm giving you money, education department, but you only get the money if you share some of it with, wait for it, your corresponding health department. Uh-huh. So what he what he created with that, because every state is going to go after money. Sure. Uh, what he created with that was this powerful incentive for them to start communicating and talking to each other. You would not believe how much progress can be made and is not being made because the people in one department just don't even speak to the people in the other department. And, and we also, we created training programs uh, so that they would learn each other's language. They, right. they use different terms. They look at each other with blank stares when, when the other one uh, is speaking. Uh, we had one of the nation's leading education organizations create a training for health department staff called How Schools Work and How to Work with Schools. <laughs> because the, the health department people, they just barge into the schools and say, this is an urgent, this is an emergency. You have to do this. And the at school people are saying, excuse me, I've got like 52 other social service agencies banging on my door. I've got lots of other nonprofit health organizations yeah. banging on my door. You know, get to the back of the line. And besides, yeah. I'm not held accountable for that. I'm held accountable for the test scores. So so explain to me why I should even care about this thing that you think is so important. We, we really worked hard to train them so they could understand each other's priorities, figure out how to communicate effectively to each other because working together they could, could make a profound difference in kids lives so how does poor health in children affect their education 
What are profoundly. some of how, how so? Profoundly, uh, kids. A uh, couple of examples of some of the uh, health issues that most directly affect uh, education uh, include, first of all, vision. You would not believe how many kids in this country don't learn uh, as well as they could and should because they're sitting in the back of the room and they don't have the glasses they need. Right. Uh, and then a lot of school programs, they think they're doing a great job because they screen the kids, they write them a prescription uh, for glasses, they send it home. The kid can't afford glasses. And yeah, that was my next question. Cause, yeah, my ne because I, I've been out of the States now for almost 20 years. And to be honest, I don't understand the intricacies of, of health insurance anymore. Things have changed. Things have gotten better in some areas, much worse in other areas. How 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 can how does health insurance cover does health insurance cover a prescription uh, for for glasses for a child is that covered? Some, place, some places it does some places it doesn't. But I would imagine we, there's a sizable deductible that has to be paid. Some places uh, there is, some places there isn't. Many times people just aren't aware. Many times they create systems, you know, as we saw with the unemployment claims in Florida, yeah. where. Even even the the state legislators were saying, oh yeah, that that system was designed to make it next to impossible for people to, to get uh, covered uh, with un unemployment. There's so much bureaucracy and paperwork and hurdles that families have to go through even to tap into uh, resources. See, that many times, that's the barrier. I think it's barbaric just to compare Norway with America. I do that constantly as an American citizen, but living here in Norway, yep. our kid, our our son uh, needed glasses. We went to our um, primary physician, our family doctor, and a couple weeks after that, he had our son had an appointment at an optical uh, at an optical center, and he got glasses. You know what we paid for that? Zero. Yeah. yeah. Why? Zero here, but the, the majority of people have similar experiences here. Uh, but then, then, then you have the indigent. You, you yes. have the undocumented uh, people who don't have access to to a lot of those insurance sources, and their number is low. It may not be a majority, but it's large, and it's growing. So some of the other health issues that that affect kids relate to mental health. Uh, obviously, would affect their learning. Uh, uh, violence. Uh, which uh, can incapacitate them and uh, make them incapable uh, of uh, even going to school. Physical activity and nutrition barriers. Uh, kids uh, are much more capable of learning uh, if if they are physically active uh, and Absolutely. if they're eating well. You know, the funny, this is the classic story. Every parent in America will confirm this for you. But whenever there is one of these big standardized tests that the reputation of the principal depends upon, uh, every every day before that, your kid from school will come home with a letter from the principal and it will say, make sure your child gets a good night's sleep and has a healthy breakfast in the morning. Well, you know what? If kids got good night's sleep every night and healthy breakfast every morning, just imagine they learn so much <laughs> that they would do well on the test. So obviously those things are, are essential to learning. Do you know anything about the numbers? How many children are not getting proper nutrition? How many kids are there that are dependent on school lunches? Maybe that's, that's the only meal. 
It's about 30 million kids who uh, participate in the school lunch program. A smaller, unfortunately, a smaller number, about 12 million, I think, in the school breakfast program. It should be the same number because many of these kids, uh, the meals they get at school uh, are, are the only meals they get. 30 and that million. was one of the big concerns. That was why quite a few mayors, like our own mayor in New York, was very reluctant to shut down the schools when, when the COVID came. Yes. Uh, because yeah. the schools serve this, this life-saving role. Mm-hmm. For so many uh, of these kids, they've set up ways that parents now can go pick up uh, food okay. uh, from, from the schools. But it's 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 rough. It's not as easy uh, as it had been. Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, coverage in the news media about that very thing, that there are many kids, many families who are worried about their children. Schools are closed. No food because they can't yeah. they can't afford it. That, what a terrible thing. That kind of stuff just hurts me to my very soul. To see that that's even possible in our country. I, I, again, I'm, I'm kind of an outsider looking in uh, from Norway. And breaks I see, your heart. Yeah, it breaks your heart. Yeah, it does. It, it just eats me up from the inside out. Now, But we need to use that. We need to get angry. Well, we, yeah. We, we need to stop being resigned. And we need to reach these, <coughs> many of them are young, uh, these people who just feel, oh, the system's so corrupt. What difference does it make if I vote? Because uh, if we haven't seen in the last uh, four years that it does make a difference, uh, it's it's hard to understand when we will. And if this pandemic hasn't illuminated that even more strongly, uh, we, we've got to get everyone out to vote. <clears throat> um, as an American here, a lot of Norwegians will come to me, some of them to make fun of me, you know, because of, <laughs> because of the political situation in our country. But some of them really want to know they're curious and they'll ask me, well, you know, what the heck is going on? Uh, what, what, what's happening in the States. And I don't really have an answer for that. It's such a crazy, weird situation. But one thing I do say to them is that in a way, I, I don't want to say this is a positive situation. It's a good thing that we're going through, but it is an eye opener. And I hope people see what happens when you don't vote. I hope people see now what happens when you don't engage yourself. I hope people see what works, what doesn't work, and then do something about it. Everybody is seeing this. So the question is, is what are we going to do about it? And I guess we'll find out in a few months in November. Um, Amen. Definitely. Yeah. Totally agree. Crazy situation. Wow. So, so what can we disagree on, John? Um, <laughs> well, you think New York is a nice place to live. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't. I, I can't really. I I can't really say anything bad about New York. I can only say that um, I was. I did four years in the Marine Corps, and then when I got out, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So I took a job as a long haul truck driver. And I was living in North Carolina at that time. And most of my runs in my 18-wheeler were up and down 95. And I would swing off into Boston. And, and I swung off into New York City quite often. Mm. And I, I was talking to your brother a couple of weeks ago. And my experience of New York, and I can't remember which neighborhoods I was in making these, these deliveries in an in a 18-wheeler, which you, you, you know the, the, the way the streets of New York are. It can be kind of crowded from time to time. Um, I would get lost quite often, so I would have to ask a local New Yorker how to get to where I needed to get. And I experienced one of two things, polar opposites. It was either the guy or the lady who was extremely friendly and helped me out. One person even actually got in the passenger seat of my truck and directed me where I needed to go. It was awesome. 
But then you have the other side where they kind of throw a few curse words at you and tell you to leave them alone because they, they just don't really care about helping anybody. I'm, I would imagine that there is quite a few people that are in between those two polar opposites. Well, you know, New York is a more, uh, just like anyone else, uh, anywhere yeah. else, only more so. Uh, so the extremes <laughs> get, get, get illuminated. I'll never forget in the early 90s, I had a visitor come, uh, stayed with us for a couple of weeks from Central Africa. And we pulled out all the stops, Statue of Liberty, uh, United Nations, Times Square, every Central Park, every, every tourist site you could possibly imagine. She just saw the most amazing sights. So as she was leaving, I asked her, what was it that sticks with you? What's the one thing that you'll, you'll never forget from your trip to New York? And I'm expecting her to say, you know, the mass of people, the lights at Times Square, uh, the, the, huts, the view from the Hudson River. I'm expecting something concrete and tangible. And she looks at me and she says, what I'll never forget is the kindness of the people. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's extraordinary. The most extraordinary of the most extraordinary here, uh, and then you get the crankiest of the crankiest. <laughs> yeah, it's two polar opposites, but then there's the yeah. majority are in the middle. Uh, one thing that I saw is after nine eleven, uh, that was an eye opener for me. Uh, it put a highlight on the goodness of the the people of New York. Yeah, um, absolutely. You guys really. Yeah, it was heartbreaking what happened, and th but then it was a beautiful thing to see how you guys kind of gelled as a city, and everybody was, it was an open arms situation. Everybody loved everybody and tried to help everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. I was actually living in Atlanta then, uh, and I was actually in Washington, D.C., in a meeting four blocks from the White House uh, when, when the plane struck the towers, and uh, we had to... Uh, miraculously find a rental car and we drove back to Atlanta in the middle of the night and we passed right by the Pentagon which was in flames and it was surreal wow How? that will haunt me and stick with me forever I, I just can't imagine taking in the visual of that I, I just I felt a chill down my spine literally when you said Pentagon in flames and I, I just couldn't imagine taking in the visual wow and, and in the dark uh, it was wow. such a surreal time Wow. Huh. And we're living in surreal times now. One thing I wanted to ask you, if I could go back, because again, uh, as I said to you before, your, your history, your, your path through life fascinates me. It's, it's quite dynamic. So if we can go back to your time in the Congo, you help these people, and you're doing all of this work uh, technically within the medical field without any medical knowledge. So then you come out of the Congo, and then you go to medical school. I know. I know. First of all, I would challenge you. Uh, I don't think any of the work I did was medical. I left that to the the nurses uh, in, from the hospital. Uh, the work I did was true, yeah. community organizing. It was public health. It was prevention, and it was education. And that's yeah. what I've done. Public health would be more. Yeah, that would be more accurate for me to say rather than than, than medical work. Yeah. Yeah. Public and, health. Yeah. You know, we in public health, we don't even like people talk about uh, healthcare. Uh, and we don't even like to, to call it that because what we do is about health care. What, what they do in the hospitals, that's sickness care. Uh, and, and there's a huge difference. And we could be so much healthier if we put more resources in true health care, which is public health. Uh, not that we should put less resources in, in sickness care. Uh, and I, I did not go to medical school. My doctorate is in uh, uh, health education, actually. So, so in that that doctorate within health education you went to columbia university correct 
Correct. Yeah. And what t- uh, what year was it when you finished that and then started working? Uh, for example, uh, at at the CDC. Uh, when did yeah, you start I, I, there? And I went to CDC right upon completing my doctorate. I had been running a community health program uh, in uh, a neighborhood in, in New York City for six years, and that was an amazing experience. It was, I, I loved it because it was the closest thing I experience, could experience to my Peace Corps service. Uh, I, uh. I served in a community that was primarily populated by immigrants from the Dominican Republic. Uh, and uh, it, it focused on promoting healthy eating, physical activity, uh, uh, preventing tobacco use. Uh, and it was a very, very exciting, dynamic program. And I was getting my doctorate while doing that. Completed my doctorate in 95 and uh, went straight from New York then to Atlanta. I suddenly had a family that included five children and we couldn't afford to live in New York City anymore. <laughs> uh, and of course, the CDC is, is the big leagues. So uh, it's the greatest opportunity in the field of public health. So I was excited to, to go down there and do that. I, I, I wish they could have opened an office in Midtown Manhattan. That would have been even more exciting. Yeah. Uh, but so, this is, so, th- so this is in the middle 90s. Yes. Uh, that's the that's the Clinton administration uh, at that time. Yes. Do you think uh, how receptive was the Clinton administration to some of the things that you and the various departments that you worked in were trying to implement? Did you have a good cooperation with them? Did they did they support Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Now it was politics, and you know they had to work with Congress, and so mm-hmm. there were always compromises that had to be made. But one of the highest marks you can you can give. Uh, leadership is is who they appoint as leadership and when i got to cdc uh, our director of the agency the cdc director was just one of the greatest men i've ever met dr david satcher uh, i don't know if you're david satcher yes yeah. he later became the the surgeon general of the Correct. united states and the assistant secretary of health and he was just the most thoughtful kind paternal uh, he was a great public health leader and a brilliant mind, but the things that always stick with people who work with him is his calm demeanor, his willingness to accept responsibility always, uh, his thoughtfulness about the needs of other people, just he, kindness, eman- kindness and thoughtfulness emanated from him. And I learned so much uh, about leadership from him. And, and have always wanted to emulate him throughout my career. I've always thought that that was one of the good characteristics, one of the good qualities of a good leader is that they inspire leadership in those that are under them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, in, 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 in Yiddish, we have a, a word, we, we say mensch. Mensch. Uh, it, it means just a good, kind man. <laughs> and... You know, I've seen, we've all had bosses who are just arrogant and obnoxious and treat people. I've always wanted the good guy to win. And with Dr. Satcher, that was clearly an example where he was loved, admired, respected. Uh, He won, uh, and he did it by being a a mensch, a a good man. That's just beautiful to hear. Uh, Harkening back to the good old days when uh, there was less less hostility in uh, in the political spectrum. Oh, 
<laughs> well, there, there was plenty of hostility sure, uh, there sure. too, and, and everything a was a kind. challenge, particularly when you know the executive was in one party's hands and the Congress was in another party's hands. Yeah. There were a lot of things, and the area I worked in uh, included uh, one of the major strands of the work I did at CDC. We were responsible for HIV prevention for adolescents. Uh, and that comes into the uh, included in that is guidance for sex education in the nation's schools. And that is such a political hot potato. Uh, and uh, the mandates we get, get from the executive branch would fluctuate based on uh, which party uh, was in power. Uh, and it made it hard to what we wanted to do is fo fo follow the scientific evidence and, and do what science indicated was best for our kids. And uh, much of the time, the politics precluded that and got in the way. Yeah. Politics versus practicality. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now these days <clears throat> you are uh, at FHI 360. Yeah. Uh, current director um, for the pro for what is the program you're the director of at FHI 360? Yeah, let me explain because uh, yeah. it's not an organization that that, that it's a nonprofit, that, correct? You know, it is a nonprofit. It is uh, mostly uh, a large international development organization. People in Africa and Asia tend to be very familiar with FHI 360. People in America and Europe not. Not quite as much, uh, but we have a very uh, a strong set of programs. One of the, the major recipients of uh, funding from the United States Agency for International Development. So we do uh, public health, education, uh, workforce development, uh, refugee uh, issues, uh, all, all sorts of, of, of good work, uh, mostly in Africa and Asia. Now, the, the organization has a, a, a modest but powerful portfolio of projects in public health, education, and workforce development that we do within the United States, uh, and I oversee uh, all of that the work. The U.S. programs. You, yeah, yeah, I can give you, uh, most of it is funded by the U.S. government, some is funded by state and local governments, foundations, uh, corporate social responsibility programs, and it, it all sounds, I know, very vague, so perhaps if I give you a couple of examples please, of some of yeah, our high-profile projects. And I also want to ask you about the funding. Let's not forget yeah. to come back to that. I want to ask you about that, but okay, yeah, okay. please, yeah. Well, our, our largest funder is my old employer, the CDC, uh, for public health projects, particularly around health communications. So one of our highest profile projects is we design, develop, implement all of the mass media campaigns for the CDC that they do on HIV prevention. So whenever CDC has an HIV prevention campaign, their people are certainly involved in the process, but we do most of the work to, to make that happen. So HIV prevention campaigns for CDC is the first one I'll mention. Second, okay. we work closely with the Office of Head Start in the United States. Uh, for your European listeners, Head Start is the government's program to provide early childcare and education for for uh, young children, uh, preschool age children who come from uh, indigent families, uh, and to try to you know make it a more of an equal playing field by the time they they get to kindergarten with with other kids. Okay. Uh, we have a large contract with the Office of Head Start where we 
provide the training and technical assistance to Head Start programs to help them deliver their services more effectively. And the programs that we serve are the Head Start programs serving migrant and seasonal farm worker communities, oh. a population that suffers from tremendous uh, inequalities uh, and, and just a vibrant, exciting uh, uh, piece of work that, that we do to help that particular community. That Another project... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say uh, some. I was just going to say something about the migrant workers. I don't know much. Surprisingly, I don't know much about the migrant worker situation in Europe, but I do know that the migrant worker situation in America has been a hot topic of political discussion. Absolutely. Are you guys, uh, with you being director of American programs, are you involved in that? Are you trying to shine a light on that situation in any way? Well, our, our angle, you know, we get hired to do specific jobs and our job is to improve the quality of the Head Start program so that the children going through that programs are on a more of an equal footing with other children by the time they, they get to kindergarten. So that's our specific focus. We do know that in order to make that happen, you have to have the families involved, you have to have the community organizations involved. So we develop collaborative processes with a lot of the organizations that represent uh, that population and so we get to know them quite well How does uh, but our focus is on 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 equalize helping to equalize uh, the, the odds so that kids uh, in those communities can succeed how, how difficult does it make your work um in america when so many of those migrant workers for example are undocumented uh, or maybe some of them are illegal. I don't know. I don't know the the situation there. How how does that affect your work? It's, it's always a challenge, and it always mm -hmm. leads to greater instability and greater anxiety for for the kids and their families. And it's just a challenge that that we have to deal with. So let me finish a couple of the uh, please, others. Yeah, please, please. Uh, we have uh, do work for the U.S. Department of Labor, in which we work with. Uh, uh, community-based organizations in nine different communities to help them implement programs to provide workforce skills, uh, teaching uh, uh, young people how to uh, you know, succeed in the workplace. And we do this for a population uh, of young people who are emerging from incarceration. So kids uh. who've been caught up in the justice system, they're getting out or they're on probation. Uh, that doesn't, that's not enough. We no. need to help them develop the skills so that they can succeed uh, in the workforce or go back and get more education or get an apprenticeship. And so we provide kind of the backbone, the, the structure, the, the guidance, the training for these community-based organizations that are, are dealing directly uh, with, with justice-involved youth. Wow. So that's another exciting thing. Uh, and I'll just mention one more project, just, just so you feel the, the exciting work we do. Uh, we have a contract with the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's a relatively new department in the federal government. It was actually created by Elizabeth Warren uh, after the, the recession uh, of 2008 and nine, when, when the banks were out of control. Uh, and this is to provide protection for consumers against you know, getting ripped off by financial institutions. And part of what that government agency has is a responsibility to educate the public. And so for them, we have created online uh, just a slew, dozens and dozens and dozens of learning activities that teachers and after-school program leaders can use to educate children about financial literacy. Uh, you know, we have this terrible problem in, in the States with, with kids, young, young adults being crushed by debt. 
from their student loans. And a lot of it is because kids just haven't been taught. They're not taught the essentials of how to balance a checkbook and uh, how to to make financial decisions. So we're playing an exciting and important role in giving uh, American teachers the capacity, the, the, the the lesson plans, the materials that they need so they, they can teach this to kids. So you see the variety. This is why sure. I love my job. It's all about helping people who need help the most. It's all about tackling the inequities in American society. Uh, it's working with amazing, resilient communities uh, that somehow managed to, to thrive despite all the odds being against them. Uh, and uh, it's a tremendous variety. We're not just focused on one issue. We're, we're tackling so many different things. Are you constantly working, Howell? Because you have one job, but that one job has so many facets, so many areas of focus. How in the world do you do that? Brilliant people. Uh, I've got a great staff. You surround yourself uh, with a good staff. That's how you do it, yeah? Yeah, and these are people who are passionate. Uh, one, one of the amazing things about my organization is there are so many people who, like me, are return Peace Corps volunteers. You know, oh. to do good, always to do good. Uh, and the thing I love about the people who work for us is, is, is that P word, passion. They, you know, everyone everyone needs to make a living. Everyone uh, has to look after their, their kids yes. and pay their bills. But we care so much about the work we do and and the quality of the work we do and serving the people that we serve and and trying to make a difference in this country well you guys are doing some very important work uh you're doing some difficult work Uh, it's 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 a it's a type of work that demands uh a a certain level of engagement and focus so you know and and you you call yourself a do-gooder some people would call anybody who's a do-gooder or anybody who has these so-called leftist thoughts you know trying to help the public at the expense of the greater public maybe uh they want to call you guys a snowflake and i think that 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 term does not fit you guys are tough you're hard-nosed you're doing the work that has to be done there's a certain amount of engagement and toughness and resilience that uh that you have to have to do that kind of work absolutely uh, some people to- some people would hear for example uh, the program you mentioned that that elizabeth warren is responsible for getting in the place and a lot of people would just dismiss it because of their political views which are the polar opposite of Elizabeth Warren and they won't think about what type of work is being done that's a sad that's a sad situation in our society today yeah hopefully if you have a chance to explain people and get beyond labels and, yeah. and, and particular politicians and explain the work we do it's 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 all for the best for all of us uh, we are only as strong as our weakest link and, and we're all on this boat together uh, and we, how would we you invest in these communities? How would you expand on that concept? Um, we are only we, we are only as strong as our weakest link. How do you explain? Oh, bless you! <laughs> I'm so sorry. A gust of wind in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Um, yeah, the, 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 this concept of <clears throat> we are only as strong as our weakest link. How would you explain that to someone who... Uh, well, how would you expand on that thought to explain the importance well, of that? You can see it in, the, in, in this pandemic. Uh, if, if, if the people who are working in the hospitals, many of whom at, at a low wage, if the people who are uh, running the trains that get the doctors and nurses uh, to to the hospitals, if 
excuse me, if the people who are stocking the shelves in the in the grocery store, uh, if the people who are delivering food to to your doors, if those people aren't healthy, if they're not thriving, we see that now. Yeah, yeah. We see how yeah. we're all interconnected and dependent upon each other. Uh, and if we want people to to reach some level of the American dream, we we need to give them the opportunities. We we need to get beyond the notion that you know anyone can just succeed and become a multimillionaire in the United States. Because the reality is, our society is horribly stratified, stratified, and and there is not much progress. It's, uh, most of the people who are wealthy uh, come from wealth, and most of the people who are not wealthy come from not wealth. Uh, and we just need to, to figure out how we communicate the, the value of all these important projects to yeah. make a difference uh, in, in, in lives of people who deserve a fast shot at the American dream. Well, a lot of people would like to just see nothing more than a level playing field, that everybody has an equal chance. Yeah. And then you and have some... The no, and, and it's not the case. And then just merely voicing that desire, you know, I want there to be a level playing field. Some people will interpret that to, oh, I want a handout. Uh, uh, the infamous James Brown uh, was quoted, uh, James Brown the musician was quoted as saying, uh, you don't have to give me anything. Just show me the door. Don't block it for me and let me get it go. myself. There you go. Uh -huh. And that just boils down to, hey, let's have a level playing field. That's right. And we all do also have to have compassion. Sure. Uh, I mean, if we, if we just turn to our faiths, uh, and, and, and see the messages of, of all our great religious leaders, it's, it, it all comes down to compassion and love for our, for our fellow human being and helping folks uh, who, who are struggling. Are you a religious man, Howell? I think so, yes. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish uh, and, and uh, believe in, in the faith and the culture and the tradition. I, th I think um, I'm a religious man myself, Christian, and from from that faith, I draw a lot of strength. I mean, it's been what has been guiding me uh, throughout this life. Um, do you believe that someone can have, well, I'm not even going to ask that question. I'll say it. <laughs> I'll say it. People who are not relig religious can also have something that guides them through life. I think Absolutely. it just boil, it boils down to just being a good person and wishing, and, and wishing well upon your fellow man. It's really yeah. that simple. Yeah. Do unto others. Do unto others. Um, you were instrumental in a family member writing a memoir. Your ex-wife, correct, wrote a memoir, correct. and you helped her write that. Um, now, I, I wanted to, I wanted to check out that memoir, but they, it doesn't ship to Norway, so I'm going to have to get some help to get it here. Um, yeah, yeah, that's been a problem here in Norway. A lot of things that were able to be bought on Amazon, you just can't do it anymore. They will yeah, not ship. Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, talk about that memoir. What's it called, and what's it's in called it? By the, by the grace of God. Uh, and it's the story of uh, uh, her survival. Uh, she was shoot. My first wife was from uh, the Congo, uh, and some of your your older listeners uh, may remember that, uh, or, or history buffs may remember that in the early '60s, when the Congo got its independence from Belgium, there were terrible wars that ensued. They called it the Congo Crisis, and the yes. UN was deeply involved in it. 
uh, and she was a small child at the time, and she uh, went through a series of truly horrific experiences, saw just massacres of people happen and uh, terrible experiences, and she tells the story and uh, had a long period where she was separated from her father, who was her hero. Uh, her father was a, an amazing person, an amazing father. He believed profoundly in education. They had two daughters, and he didn't see why they should not be as well educated in it as any of the boys <laughs> in town. And this was insanely radical in the 1960s in, in, in Central Africa. Uh, and, you know, all his friends kept saying, when are you going to marry those daughters off? And, <laughs> And he say, he would say, that's for them to decide. Uh, again, he, he was like a, a 2020 progressive American dad in the middle of a situation where there was just nobody else was thinking like he was thinking. So it's a really inspiring portrait of, of him uh, and then her progression through life, uh, based guided by a, a passion for education and, and, and achievement. Uh, and then it's a story of her fierce love with her, her sister, who was uh, infected with HIV. Uh, the Congo was an epicenter <clears throat> in the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And it's a story of uh, the terrible heartbreak and, and tragedy. Uh, her sister, just a beautiful, beautiful person who I love dearly. Uh, and then it's a story of how we wound up uh, when her sister's husband uh, was ill as well, uh, how we wound up adopting their three children and bringing them to live with us in the United wow. States. They're all grown up. Uh, that's a big move. They're all now. Uh, and that's how we became uh, suddenly uh, overnight a family of five. We had had two children uh, of our own. And then finally, uh, it's also a story of her adoption of the Jewish faith and how that filled a hole in her, her spiritual life that, that she felt needed to be filled. What a beautiful so story. story. Yeah. What's the, what's the name of her memoir? Tell people. By the Grace of God. By the true story of love, war, family, and survival from the Congo or something like that. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm definitely going to buy that. I'll figure out somebody. Maybe my sister back in Ohio will buy it for me and then send it here. Yeah, but her, the, her sister's three children are, are grown. They're... They're, one of them just turned 40. The others are in their 30s. Uh, they are wonderful, productive, brilliant citizens of the United States. Uh, among them, they have four beautiful, beautiful children who call me grandpa. <sighs> and it's just a blessing that we were able to uh, have them in our family. Oh, that's just beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, family is everything. Um, I find myself <laughs> feeling my family ties uh it's a little bit ironic maybe i feel my family ties much more now that i'm away from them than i ever did when i was there i feel my americanness a lot more now than i ever did well and people are feeling so such a need for that with with the isolation uh from from the stay-at-home orders for the covid pandemic uh, such a need to to connect and and re-establish uh strengthen ties with family yeah we get on uh so i have five kids and 
with with my my wife and I, we we get on uh, Zoom calls with them every couple of weeks, and and you know the grandchildren and make a lot of noise, and they're just <laughs> adorable, and it's it's beautiful. Well, thank God for Zoom, and and we're, we're on Messenger uh, video chat. Thank God for those things. I tell you, it's uh, yeah, it's a real as, as annoying as the social media could be, uh, and all the technology, uh, it's truly a, a blessing. Well, I haven't. Uh, my mother, I, my I, my ninety year old mother lives. Uh, not far from us, but she lives in a senior living uh, residence, and uh, naturally they're on very strict lockdown. Sure, so we yeah. haven't been able to see, and and we were sick. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, but we were both sick with COVID, my wife and I. So we haven't been able to visit her for two months. Thank goodness uh, we are able to see her yeah. uh, through, through the the miracle of the electronic technology. And, well, in general, I've had good experiences with social media ever since I got involved. I think Facebook in 2012 was when I started uh, my little social media journey. And for me, it was a beautiful thing because uh, now I left my hometown in Ohio uh, when I was 18 and I never went back. But through Facebook and other social media platforms now, I've been able to get in contact with those old classmates. And I tell you, it's just been one beautiful reunion after another with the old friends that I had back. So that, that's my view of, of social media. And I use it, I use it to promote my music and, and things like that. So for me, social media is a positive thing. But good Lord, can people get ugly sometimes? It's appalling. Twitter, it's Twitter is just a jungle of meanness. Twitter, Twitter yeah. is, oof, wow. It's a shame. I don't know what it void is. there is in people that uh, allow them to to be so ugly. It's 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 a real shame. That is, it is. Um, how's how are you feeling now? Now you you you're at the tail end of your your COVID affliction. How are you feeling yeah, now? I, I am feeling great now. I fell ill in the middle of March. Uh, I had all the classic symptoms. I had a fever, headaches, uh, fa intense fatigue, and really intense coughing. Yeah. Uh, and after, uh, I knew, I, I, I was pretty sure I had it. It just came on me like a flash. Yeah. It was so bizarre. Usually with some kind of illness, you start feeling a little this, a little that. Yeah. This was, was just like a, like a light bulb being turned on. And, and, and within seconds, I said, oh, my God, I must have it. Wow. Uh, I, w I kept myself at home because the guidance then was, you know, don't go to the hospital unless you really need to. And after about six days, the coughing got so bad, my doctor said, get, get, get yourself to the hospital. And I got there. They took a chest X-ray, and I was on my way to pneumonia. I was, had early signs of pneumonia. Uh, so they gave me the antibiotics for that and sent me home. And uh, I rigidly separated myself from my wife, Lori. Uh, I was in the bedroom. She's in the living room because we have a small Manhattan apartment. Uh, we think she got it as well. She started mm -hmm. having symptoms. Her symptoms were a little less in intense than mine. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I had two miserable, miserable weeks. And then I started getting better. And I actually started working from home. Uh, and, and it got better and better. But I would have four or five good days. And I'd even start exercising again. Uh -huh. And then all of a sudden, just like that, I would get this wave of intense exhaustion come over me. And I would have to shut off the laptop for work, crawl into bed, and I couldn't move for 24 hours. Now, was this the fever coming back? I, or? 
Very, very slight. So it okay. would go up uh, just, just a tidge. It, it wasn't really a, for okay. anything that doctors would be, but I could feel it. I see. And I could predict what my temperature was going to be. Mostly it was just exhaustion. I don't know if it was the virus or just my immune system got so used to being engaged at war with an invader that every few days it would just get bored and say, come on, let's do battle. And it would just <laughs> beat me into submission. So it, it went on like that for six weeks. Four, four or five good days I, I made the mistake two or three times I said I'm cured I'm healed <laughs> and then boom it knocked me down again it ah. is a nasty ugly virus and a totally unpredictable virus but John I'm so excited to tell you I am on day nine now nine consecutive good days and it ah. feels fabulous that's and awesome good for you I gotta tell you when I was lying in bed for a month and hearing the complete absence of sounds outside my window in one of the noisiest, loudest places on earth, New York City. <laughs> and there was just no sound happening outside. Yeah. And then every two or three minutes, ambulance the siren. Ambulance, yeah. Ambulance siren, ambulance siren. Talk about faith. I cannot tell you how profoundly grateful I was then. I remain now every second of every day that I had the good fortune to come through this thing. But mingled with that was rage, anger, because I know I came through this because I have good health insurance. I had all these different options for doctors I could call and, and speak to on the phone. I had food. I had water. I had a, a separate room where I could be applied. Yeah, yeah. All of those things, so so many people in, in, in our country, of course around the world, but what a what a tragedy that so many people in, in this country don't have those things and consequently suffered <clears throat> Imagine lost of all. They they lost their lives because of that. Yeah. And imagine someone going that, Yeah. No, I was going to say, imagine someone going through all that, all those symptoms, uh, all that confusion alone uh, yeah. and with no, none of the comforts of, you know, like, you know, access to or medicine. Being afraid to, or being afraid to go to the hospital yeah. because of immigration yeah. status. Yeah. Think about that. What do you say to the, to the anti-immigration person who says, well, that's their own fault for being here illegally? What do you say oh, to that? They're people. They're people. They're fueling our economy, for one thing. That is something, they, yes. They are. They are. a lot more than, than they get out. Uh, but forget about that. Uh, they're they're mm. human beings. And if they don't get treated, there's increasing probability they'll be spreading it. They're That's how we're all in the same boat. Absolutely. An infectious disease, a highly infectious virus like this just perfectly illuminates how we all have to look after each other and how that argument just doesn't hold water. No, um, you have to, you have, have to have a heart. Everyone. You have to have a heart. You have to have compassion. And that's the it's, thing. It's not just a heart. It's about having a brain. If you can't see <laughs> yeah. that, if, if we don't heal them, they're going to affect a lot more people and it's going to get to us. Absolutely. Howell, what do you do for exercise? You mentioned that you're getting back to where you can exercise or in, in, uh, in, in there in New York. What do you, what do, you do? Are you a member at a... 
I have my own regimen uh, inside my apartment, a uh, series of stretches and calisthenics I do every day. But then I would usually go, I do have a gym inside my apartment building, and I used to do cardio exercises, a little weightlifting there. Uh, and now I can't do that. That's closed. So instead, I climb the stairs. Uh, that's hardly anyone, you know, I, I wear my mask even just to climb the stairs, sure. even though hardly anyone besides me uses the stairs. <laughs> I live on the 14th floor of, okay. of a 35-floor yeah. apartment building. Uh, so I just climb up and down the stairs, and then every evening I, I take brisk walks through uh, the fairly desolate streets uh, yeah. of Manhattan. I, I walk to Times Square, and there's hardly anyone there. How far from uh, Times Square are you? Hello? About a mile and a half. Okay, yeah. Uh, there are people on the streets. It's just not terribly crowded. And there are, even here in New York, I'd say about 25% of the people are not wearing masks. And uh, that appalls me. It stuns me. It shocks me. I cannot fathom how they could do that. Because, of course, we know wearing of the mask doesn't protect you all that much. It protects people in it case you others. are asymptomatic yeah. and, and, and infected. And it's it's... It's the only decent thing to do for your neighbors. And, well, yeah, uh, exactly. I but I got to tell you, it does help me uh, get my cardio up because uh, these people walk right at you with no mask on. I have to like scoot across the street. <laughs> so it gives me a good workout be because I'm going to stay away from those folks. Have you had uh, out being outdoors the, and passing someone by? The probability of getting infected is incredibly low. Yeah. However, However, why take any chance and why not be considerate uh, of your, your fellow citizens? So it, it, it helps speed up my workout. <laughs> Have you had anyone react negatively to you wearing a mask? I'm seeing some news stories about people actually getting violent. Uh, yeah, we, we're hearing lots of news stories like that. Uh, no, uh, some someday someone might because sometimes I can't help myself and I give them the stink <laughs> eye. I see them and I say, "Come on, how inconsiderate! How far? It's not a big deal to wear the mask. It's it doesn't impinge your your movement really. There's just there's just no excuse for it. Uh, but of course, I'm not the person in in a store telling people they have to put them in. That's when most of these violent incidents have happened. Yes, yeah. When some you know poor worker who's been given this policy for the good of uh, for the good of everyone, particularly yeah. the people who work, because you know there are a lot of studies coming out now showing uh, uh, its its proximity and duration of contact that uh, increase your, your chances of exposure. So when we go into a grocery store and we're in and out in, in ten minutes, our chances of getting infected are, are quite low. But the people who work there are there all day. Uh, and, and their chances are much higher. And so this poor person who was trying to enforce the rule and telling folks, they're protecting their co-workers more yeah, than, than yeah. everyone else. And so for people to react that way, it's, it's, it's just so, so sad. There's some isolated cases here in Norway of people, you know, kind of getting bent out of shape because of, um, in, in particular, people working at grocery stores wearing masks and, and, and whatnot. And some people are reacting negatively to that. But for the most part, people are overwhelmingly cooperative and they're, they're 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 listening to what the government is is recommending uh, and, and we see the result of that in the numbers and i think that's the case uh, here as well except here as compared to norway people in a in in a, in a small fringe groups they tend to be very loud and our crazy country gives them in many places the freedom to walk around with 
high-velocity weapons. Well, there's this loud bunch of people who don't trust the government, and I guess to a certain extent I can understand that distrust, but it's the way in which they express themselves. Yeah, I don't understand this whole thing of marching on the Capitol building. Where was that? In, in Michigan. Marching yeah. on the Capitol building, breaking in to the Capitol building with automatic weapons i don't understand what they were trying to achieve i don't understand why that was allowed and accepted i, I, I again i see these things and it hurts me to my very soul that it just i live here and i i can't offer any yeah. further clarification I it's just, just a crazy one, time i can just say one word america it's a crazy crazy time yeah uh, and we have to give voice and strength to the, you know, 75, 80% of the people who get it and are behaving properly yeah. uh, and, and understand uh, common sense and, and appreciate science. That, well, that's one thing I try to express to my friends and colleagues here in Norway is that the overwhelming majority of Americans don't approve of that image that's being projected yeah. out there. It's not a majority who is, you know speaking loudly and not following the, the, the recommendations of the government. It's not a majority who is falling into this thing that being, uh, they call it um, being against politically correct. I call it just being an asshole. <laughs> There's people, you know, that's not, the, that's not the majority of us. It really isn't. Absolutely right. No, I, uh, but the majority, you know, back in the day, they used to talk about it in a different context. They used to talk about the silent majority. Yeah. And we're just too silent. We're just too silent, and then we compromise too easily, and yeah. we we really need to stand firm. How long do you think it's going to be until things get back to normal as far as COVID, or will things get back to normal? Will normal be defined in a totally different way in the future than it is now? The only thing I know is that people who are pretending that they know what's going to happen uh, are kidding themselves. Uh, no idea. Uh, a lot of it sometimes is, is luck. Uh, so, you know, with all the states opening up now and a state like Georgia that opened up several weeks ago, sometimes, you know, through luck, they'll, they'll get through it and they won't have a, a particular super spreader event. Uh, and, and maybe, uh, something good will happen, but I think all of the science indicates that it is going to be resurgent, uh, in the fall. So I don't know what the new America looks like. I don't know how New York City gets back on its feet. My youngest child is, is a theater actress, uh, so she's been unable to work. We are patrons of the theater. My wife, Laurie, and I love yeah. going uh, to, to see Broadway shows, and it breaks a heart that that whole industry uh, has been shut down. Yeah. I just don't know when it's going to be able to come back uh, because nothing is more important than than health and this is a nasty nasty highly contagious yeah. virus it's 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 uh it's affecting a lot of aspects of our society i would say the what i feel the most is my artistic side you know gatherings for music uh, and I also do stand-up comedy and that stuff is just totally shut down and with yeah. New York being a mecca of entertainment yeah, uh, yeah the, the, the very face of New York is changing 
Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and then, of course, we also, you know, we've done the right thing. Unlike, there are many, many American cities, particularly in the Sun Belt, where they never set up mass transit systems and, and people are still driving and com- contributing uh, to carbon footprint and, and climate uh, crisis. Uh, we've always done the right thing in New York. We have yeah. uh, amazing mass transit system. Yeah. And it's going to be really, really hard there. Got great minds working on it, but it's going to be really hard to move the volume of people we typically move in such close proximity in mass transit. So, we, we, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get uh, science will come through for us, and we'll get a vaccine, and we'll get treatments, and we can get back somewhat closer to to a normal life. I think the vaccine will come eventually. What worries me is that it might be a thing with you know with with other flu viruses that change every year. So that we're always going to be behind the curve when it comes to the vaccine thing. And it's like, oh, my God, what? Yeah, what is the future? I'm not trying to be alarmist, but but anybody with a brain and anybody with any respect for science sees that this is a this is a little bit different here. (laughs) This is a little bit crazy. Absolutely. But we know we know places that. Many of the places that have done well have done well because they have security for, for their yeah. citizens, security yeah. for health care coverage, financial yeah. security. Yeah. And uh, it is a, a powerful lesson that we need to remedy yeah. the inequities that we have in American society. Well, I'm thankful to be here in Norway. And, and Norway will never replace my good old Ohio town. Uh, nothing is better than home, but I tell you what, I, I really appreciate having my family here in Norway. Now we just don't have to worry about those things. There is a level playing field here. Everybody has access to the same education, the same, uh, healthcare. Um, (laughs) this is a good place to be. You know, my brother and his family have lived there for for many years, and I'm so, so grateful uh, that he's there. And what a great guy. I just love love your brother, Michael. He's he's a character, and I love that guy. I can't. I can't believe you haven't mentioned uh, my, my my son Alex though, because like you, he's a bobcat. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Ohio University, Athens, Ohio. <laughs> great town. Great yeah, college. It is. Yeah. Gosh, I get homesick thinking about that. Oh. Wow. <laughs> well, I think that this has been one of my favorite episodes so far. Um, I, I like talking with people like yourself who put themselves out there uh, for the betterment of the greater society. You, you are definitely a man who is not afraid to give. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you, John. Uh, that, that's, that's probably your parents' fault, raising you that way. <laughs> well, you, you know, you look at we were three, three kids. Uh, the eldest became a physician, uh, the middle one a social worker, and mm-hmm. I became a public health professional. Yeah. So it does seem to run in the family. Well, it's a great line of work. And uh, I just want to say I'm, I'm honored, I'm, I'm flattered that a man of your stature would take the time to talk to little old me on this little old podcast here. I, I truly appreciate it. I've been telling you offline, you are, I've, I've done a lot of media interviews in my time and you are one of the best interviewers uh, I've experienced. You're just a natural at this. And I hope more people get the word and, and tune in. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's just my curiosity. You know, I, I don't feel that I interviewed you. I feel like I let you speak on what you have. I feel like uh, that's what was called for for this episode. I, I, I just want to have a platform yeah. so that people can can hear something that might benefit them. I think you said a lot of things that people 
can take to heart and uh, don't kid yourself uh, it's a skill uh, it's not that easy to, to do what you do and uh, you do it beautifully thank you I'm enjoying myself I really am well Dr. Howell Wexler everybody um, thanks a lot doctor thanks a lot Howell for doing this okay it was a pleasure. Go Bobcats. <laughs> Go Bobcats. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Bye, everybody. I'm coming home. Oh.